I want you to look with me at John chapter 12, verse 32. Interesting verse. It's kind of where we're going to launch from today, but we're going to be in the 27th chapter of Matthew. So if you want to also turn there, you're going to need your Bibles today. But we start in John chapter 12, verse 32, where Jesus said, And when I am lifted up on the cross, I will draw everyone to myself. John says he said this to indicate how he was going to die. Jesus basically said, when I am crucified on the cross, I'm going to save many lost souls. Now, I want you to understand something. Jesus doesn't say that all people are going to be saved and make it into heaven. That's not what that verse said. He certainly made a way for everyone to be able to get into heaven. What Jesus did on the cross was sufficient to save anyone, anywhere who has lived or will live on this planet. God has made a way through Jesus Christ for everyone to be set free from the powers of hell and give them the ability to be able to enter into heaven. All you have to do, and this is what's so easy, all you have to do is trust Jesus and accept him. Now again, let me say this. Not all of the entire human race is going to be saved. But people from all the people groups that exist on this planet will be saved. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 states that. He says, after this, John writes this, After this I saw a vast crowd too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white and held palm branches in their hands. What you're looking at when you read that verse is the church. As diverse as it could possibly be because God is going to save people from every people group around this planet to be a part of his family. And uh, praise God, that's inclusive of us. Amen? Amen? Now, I also want you to understand that there's no way to get to God apart from the cross. Because only through the death of Christ Jesus on the cross is sin atoned for in a way that is acceptable to God. In Matthew 20, Jesus said, Even I, the Son of Man, came here not to be served, but to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. Think about it. Jesus used his life to pay for your freedom. That's how you got free, was through his life. Now, why did he do that? Well, Paul talks about it in Romans 3.23. For all of us have sinned. We're all sinners, and we fall short of God's glorious standard. And yet God in his gracious kindness declared us not guilty. He has done this through Christ Jesus who has freed us by taking away our sin. For God sent Jesus to take the punishment for our sin and to satisfy God's anger against us. We are made right with God when. I, I, I circle that word when. Because there's a time when you're not right with God. But you are made right with God when we believe that Jesus shed his blood, sacrificing his life for us. That word believe is a word that means trust. When you're ready to trust Jesus with your life for everything that you need, that is when you're changed from being someone who didn't know him and not a part of him to someone who is. Now, it's also through the cross that Divine forgiveness is given, and Jesus states that in Matthew 26. He said, this is my blood, 
which seals the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out to forgive the sins of many. It was God's plan from the very beginning all along to send his son Jesus to be lifted up on the cross. In Luke 22, 22, Jesus said, For I, the Son of Man, must die since it is part of God's plan. Now, here's why the death of Jesus had to happen. This is why he had to be lifted up on that cross. This is why it was simply God's will. Peter states that. He said, But you must not forget, dear friends, that a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise to return, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. Take that personal. He is delaying the coming of his son for you. He does not want anyone to perish, so he's giving more time for everyone to repent. You see, God doesn't want anybody to wind up in hell. Not a single soul. And that's why Jesus came. I love this verse in Matthew 18, verse 12, where it talks about the shepherd. Jesus, no doubt, is the great shepherd. And it says here that if a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one wanders away and is lost, what will he do? Will he forget about him? Will he move on? says, no. Won't he leave the 99 others and go out into the hills to search for the lost one? And if he finds it, he will surely rejoice over it more than the, the, uh, over the, the 99 that didn't wander away. And in the same way, it is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. God would love for all the human race to wind up in heaven. He would love for that to happen. He did not make hell for people. Hell is for Satan and for all the fallen angels. They don't have a soul and they are not redeemable, but you do and you are. And you're why Jesus went to the cross. Think about that. You are why Jesus went to the cross. The cross is about you. It's about the crowning act of his creation. He wants to redeem all the lost. Now, folks, we know what God planned. And we even know what Jesus did, but what we don't know is what you're going to do with Jesus. We don't know that. You may not even know that yet. John, John MacArthur said, Jesus Christ makes a claim on every human heart, and every heart must decide what to do with Jesus. The most important and inescapable question every human faces is the one that Pilate asked in this passage. What shall I? What shall I do with Jesus? Now what you do with Jesus is going to determine your eternal destiny. Are you going to lift him up? Or are you going to mock him like so many before you have done? If you're like most people, and I believe this to be true, what you do with Jesus has a lot to do with what you know about Jesus. And there's that old statement, you just don't know what you don't know, right? Right? You don't know what you don't know. And in relationship to Jesus, it took about 300 years for them to understand the nature and the character of who Jesus was. That's the big question. 
We talk about Jesus being the Son of God. We talk about Him being the Son of Man. We talk about Him being God. We talk about Him being all man. Was Jesus the God-man? Was He half God, half man? Or was He all God and all man? You know, the Scripture teaches clearly that Jesus was fully God. Isaiah prophesied about Him some 800 years before his birth. In Isaiah 7, 14, it says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be pregnant, and she will have a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. Long, long before Jesus was born, it was divinely predicted that this mother would, would be a virgin, that she would have a boy child, and his name would be Emmanuel, which is significant because it means God with us. God would come and dwell among men on a mission to redeem the lost. That's very clearly affirmed later in New Testament writings in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. He writes, in the beginning. Now you've got to ask, what beginning? God's beginning? No. In the beginning of creation, when God made original matter, in the beginning, when Something was made from nothing. In the beginning, the Word. Now, capital W-O-R-D is a reference to Jesus Christ. So you can just circle the Word, Word, and write Jesus above it. In the beginning, the Word, Jesus, already existed. Before things were created, He was already in existence. Think about that. It says He was with God and what? He was God. If he was God, he still is God. He was in the beginning with God. He created everything there is. Nothing exists that he didn't make. Paul writes, your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his right as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and he appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on the cross. Listen to what Peter says about Jesus. He said, for it is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of all of our ancestors who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy and righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him to life. And we are witnesses, he says, of this fact. Peter called Jesus the holy and the righteous one, the author of life. Well, to know Jesus is to know the Father. To believe in Jesus is to believe in the Father. To see him is to see the Father. To honor Jesus is to honor the Father. And to receive Jesus is to receive the Father. Oh, the scripture says so much about Jesus. You know, it says that he is omnipotent. That's a churchy word. You know what it means? He's all powerful. 
He is all-powerful, and we see that in Scripture. Jesus, uh, John, or Matthew writes, John came, or Jesus came, and he told his disciples, I have been given complete authority in heaven and in earth. There's no other place outside of that. That's inclusive of everything that exists. He said, I have complete authority. He is omnipotent. He is also omnipresent. You know, the devil can only be in one place at one time. So if he's at my house, he's not at your house. If he's at your house, he's not at my house. But Jesus can be everywhere, and he is. In Matthew 28, 20, he says, Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I've given you, and be sure of this. I am with you, what? Always. No matter where you go, I'm there. It dawned on me the first time I went to Thailand, hey, He's with our church that I left, and he's with us here. That's on the other side of the world, folks. It takes 24 hours of flying time to get there. And we were there, and he was there, and yet he was still here. That's the kind of God we know. He's omnipresent. He's also eternal. He says, even to the end of the age, that's a timeless statement. The thing about Jesus, he has no beginning and no end. He's eternal. He's even changeless. The, the writer of Hebrews said, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the creator of the world, John said. He created everything there is. Nothing exists that he didn't make. In Mark chapter 2, verse 5, we find that Jesus is even able to forgive your sin. Why do you need him? Because you need your sin forgiven. Amen? what it says. Now, seeing this faith, Mark writes, Jesus said to a paralyzed man. Now, I want you to think about this. This man was paralyzed. What is a paralyzed man's greatest need? Think about that. Some would say to be able to walk. Well, let's look at what happens here. Jesus said, my son, your sins are forgiven. Ooh. I think Jesus dealt with the most important thing first, didn't he? But verse 6 says, Some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there said to themselves, What? This is blasphemy. Who but God can forgive sins? And Jesus knew what they were discussing among themselves. And so he said to them, Why do you think this is blasphemy? Is it easier to say to a paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or get up and pick up your mat and walk? What's the easiest thing to do? Think about that. Well, the easiest thing to do is say, hey, your sins are forgiven. Because we're not going to know whether they are or not. But if he says, take your mat, rise up, and walk home, if you're God, he better get up. That's right. Notice what Jesus said in verse 10. I will prove that I, the Son of Man, have the authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, how's he going to prove it? Says Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, take your mat, and go home because you are healed. If he can do that, he can, he can forgive your sin and save your soul. That's exactly what the man did. Folks, somebody that can do that deserves to be worshipped, and Jesus is one of those that deserves to be worshipped. Paul writes, in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on the cross. Because of this, God raised him to the heights of heaven and gave him a name 
that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, there's no one greater than Jesus Christ. He's the greatest. He's Lord. But the question is, what will you do with Jesus? What are you going to do with him? Even though the scripture teaches that Jesus is fully God, it even teaches he is fully human. The writer of Hebrews says, that is why we have a great high priest who has gone on to heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us cling to him and never stop trusting him. The high priest of ours understands our weakness. Why? For he has faced all the same temptations we do, and yet he did not sin. Paul writes, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Now, only a man who had never sinned could take your place on the cross that you and I deserve to die on. And he did it to make us right with God. That's why he did it. He paid the price it cost with his death to be able to forgive our sins. Forgiveness is not cheap. You can't buy it at the grocery store. Jesus paid for it on a cross. Paul writes, but now you are free from the power of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The writer of Hebrews said, just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our hearts from deeds that lead to death so that we can worship the living God for by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. This verse and, and, and so many more speak to the fact that Jesus is the one who can take care of our greatest need. As one author put it, whether men realize it or not, Jesus is the dominant figure in all of of human history and the determiner of the destiny of every human being. The question is, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with him? Are you going to raise him up? Are you going to lift him up or are you going to put him down? That's your decision. What we're going to be looking at this morning, I think, is one of the most shameful things that could have ever been done to Jesus Everything that they did to Jesus or with Jesus from the time that he was arrested in the garden until his death on the cross, I want you to understand, was a mockery. It was a mockery. Matthew specifically shows us how they mocked the Son of God. He even uses the word mocked several times as he described the shameful action of individuals. Now, please understand also that Satan's goal was to keep Jesus off the cross. That was his number one goal because if he could keep Jesus off the cross, then there would be no way to be forgiven and saved. But when that was not possible, and it wasn't possible because God is much stronger and more powerful than Satan, when it wasn't possible, Satan had to settle for taking uh, the, uh, the lesser step and just trying to make a mockery of the life and death of Jesus. To mock someone, as the word is used here in Matthew, means to make sport of. Some of you have been mocked before. 
If you've ever been bullied or shamed, you, you know what mockery is. It's a Greek word that means to jest or to belittle or to insult or ridicule or, or to take down, to tear down. And that was Satan's goal for Jesus. What's interesting to me is how many people got on board with, with Satan and were actually used by him to perform this wicked and evil task. Pilate even set the stage for the mocking of Jesus with one simple question. Are you the king of the Jews? He's not only set the stage, but Pilate himself mocks Jesus. We're going to look at Matthew 27, verse 11 here. Look at that and read with me what what, what, what's said in Matthew. He says, Now Jesus was standing before Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor, and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, Yes, it is as you say. But when the leading priests and the other leaders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. He said, Don't you hear there many charges against you? Pilate demanded, but Jesus said nothing, much to the governor's great surprise. Now, it was the governor's custom to release one prisoner to the crowd each year during the Passover celebration, anyone they wanted. This year, there was a notorious criminal in prison, a man named Barabbas. And the crowds gathered, as the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Verse 18 clearly says something that, that's interesting here. It says he knew very well that the Jewish leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Pilate was well aware that Jesus was innocent. And so he, you know, so to, to, to give in and, and to bow to public opinion was a mockery of justice, but it was also a mockery of Jesus. Verse 19, it said then, just then as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message. Leave that innocent man alone because I had a terrible dream about him last night. Meanwhile, the leading priest and the other leaders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So when the governor asked again, which of these do you want me to release to you? The crowd shouted back their reply, Barabbas! But if I release Barabbas, Pilate asked them, what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? What should I do with him? And they shouted, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the crowd only roared even louder, crucify him. Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this, of the blood of this man. The responsibility is yours. And all the people yelled back, we will take responsibility for his death, we and our children. So Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip and then he turned him over to the Roman soldiers to crucify. As I read the scripture, I see that the soldiers were especially vicious in their mocking of Jesus. In verse 27, it says, Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus to their headquarters and called out the entire battalion. This wasn't just a handful of men. 
This was a whole group of men. They all turned out for the show. And it says in verse 28, they stripped Jesus. And they put a scarlet robe on him. And they made a crown of long, sharp thorns and they put it on his head. Now, they didn't gently place that on his head. They thrust that on his head. The sharp thorns and and put it on his head and they placed a, a stick in his right hand as a scepter. And then they knelt before him in mockery, yelling, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit in his face and they grabbed the stick and they beat him on the head with it. Thrusting those thorns deeper into his scalp. And when they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off that robe, that robe that was saturated with blood. You see, he's already been scourged. His back is already lacerated. It looks like a piece of tenderized meat and now that robe has stuck to his back as the blood dried and they rip it off and they put his own clothes back on him and they led him away to be crucified you got to get in the mind of the soldiers they knew he was going to be crucified anyway so you can rest assured they took full advantage of their opportunity and they were excessively brutal in their mocking of Jesus There's a scripture verse in Isaiah 52, verse 14. Again, 800 plus years before this happened that talked about what Jesus would look like. It says in that passage, many were amazed when they saw him beaten and bloodied, so disfigured that one would scarcely know that he was a person. Not that he was Jesus, but that he was even a human being. Verse 32 says, as they were on the way, as they were leading him to the cross, they came across a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, and they forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Why? Because Jesus had lost so much blood and he had been beaten so Badly, he, he can't hardly, he's falling beneath the load of the cross and he can't carry it anymore. So they made this man carry it for him. And then they went out to the place called Golgotha, which means skull hill or the skull. And the soldiers gave him wine mixed with bitter gall. But when he had tasted it, he refused to drink it. And after that, They nailed him to the cross. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. And they sat around and they kept guard as he hung there like he's going to go somewhere. He has arrived. He is at his destination point. He is at mission central. He's where God sent him to be. He's dying for you and me. It said in verse 37 that a signboard was fastened to the cross above Jesus' head, announcing the charge against him. It read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. What a charge. What a charge. 
two criminals were crucified with him, their crosses on either side. So you've got Pilate who mocked Jesus. You've got the soldiers who mocked Jesus. But even the people who were not a part of this atrocious crime mocked Jesus. Look at verse 39. It says, And the people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their head in mockery. So, you can destroy the temple and build it again in three days, can you? Well then, if you are the Son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. They had no idea who they were mocking. No idea. Even the religious leaders led in this mocking in an unusual way. It says in verse 41 that the leading priest and the teachers of religious law and the other leaders also mocked Jesus. They scoffed, he saved others, but he can't save himself. So he's the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted God. Let God show his approval by delivering him. For he said, I am the son of God. How foolish to mock Jesus. Even the most desperate of men mocked Jesus though. Verse 44. It says, and the criminals who were crucified with him also shouted the same insults at him. Now, Matthew records here that he indicates that both of these men, the two thieves that hung on either side of Jesus, at least initially mocked Jesus. But something changed. It says in other passages that one man realized who he was and and the other refused to see the truth. One desperately cried out for Jesus' help, and the other was defiant to the very end. One of them trusted Jesus, but the other rejected Jesus. They both died that day, but one died and went with Jesus to heaven while the other died and started his journey toward hell. Oh, and by the way, that one lost thief is waiting right now to stand trial at the great white throne judgment of God. What a waste from one bad decision. So many people before you have answered this question, what am I going to do with Jesus? A lot of people have already settled that issue in their mind. Their decision is just that though. It's their decision. It's not yours, theirs. You're not responsible for what they did with Jesus, but you are responsible for what you do with Jesus. You're responsible for your decision. You have to decide. You have to make up your mind. You'll either raise Jesus up and give him the throne of your heart or you're going to reject him and make a mockery of everything that Jesus did on the cross. Know this, you cannot remain neutral. There's no straddling the fence. You have to make up your mind and you either raise Jesus up and give him that throne in your heart, of your heart or you reject him and you make a mockery of him and everything he ever did. You have to decide who Jesus is and what you're going to do with him. I want us to go back and consider briefly what the men or what the people of Matthew 27 did with Jesus. We've seen in scripture that the soldiers mocked Jesus. They made a sport of him. It was like a game to them. 
The people in the crowd, they mocked Jesus as well. They wanted Jesus to prove he was the son of God by coming down. Little did they know that he was going to prove that by coming out of the, out of the tomb. And Pilate, he mocked Jesus as well. He made the mistake of listening to public opinion. He made the mistake of not listening to his wife. Trying to help you guys. <laughs> he made an even worse mistake by thinking that he could wash the blood of Jesus off his hands. Oh, he, he could do that with not much trouble. You can take a, a bowl of water and wash blood off your hands. The guys, listen to me. Water won't wash sin stains off your soul. He may have got the blood off his hands, but he was left with the sin stains on his soul that day. And then there's that unrepentant thief. You would have thought that in your darkest hour when you're nailed to a cross and near death, when you're hanging next to the Son of God, you would have thought that he could have figured out who this Jesus was, but he didn't. But one man did. One did. And praise God, he was saved. His eternal destiny was changed. Here's the truth. Everybody in this room and everybody in the world will either accept Jesus or reject him. One or the other. There's, uh, they're the only two choices you get. No one can make that decision for you. You either make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life or you say no, and you reject him. Can I encourage you today not to reject him? Can I encourage you to put your faith in the truth of Scripture? Can I encourage you to, to trust Jesus to make things right between you and God? John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes back to the Father except through me. And Jesus is the one that said that. You don't get right with God by coming to church. You don't get right, right with God by joining the church or even by being baptized. You get right with God by trusting Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. He makes you right with God. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the only Savior that God's ever going to send. The only one. There's not another one coming. At the cross, he made things to where you could be forgiven. He made a way. He accepted your sin. He, he placed himself on the cross to do just that. He took our place. He was our substitute. He suffered your hell on the cross. Isn't it a waste to think that he suffered your hell on the cross and yet some are going to suffer in hell for eternity needlessly? He endured the cross so that you and I could be saved so why not trust him this morning? Why not? Why not turn from your sin and turn to God through what Christ did? You have a decision to make. You can either make a mockery of Jesus and all that he's done, or you can make him Lord of your life. And that's a far better choice. I want you to bow your heads with me. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm just going to say a simple prayer. And then you're going to do what you're going to do with Jesus.
Our praise team is going to come. We're going to have an invitation in just a moment. The invitation is for you to just decide what you're going to do with that question. What am I going to do with Jesus? I'm sure that's not the first time you've been asked that question. What am I going to do with Jesus? And I'm sure there have been times in the past that you've not done anything. You think I've got plenty of time. Well, you don't know how much time you have. Today, according to Scripture, is the day of salvation. If God is speaking to you today, it's probably the loudest that you'll ever hear him speak. Please don't waste your opportunity. If you'll come to me this morning, come down here, I will help you to know Jesus. And I'll help you to find peace. And I'll help you to, mock, or to praise Jesus instead of mock him. It's a decision that you have to make. I'll be glad to help you. Father, we're all faced with that decision right now. What will we do with Jesus? It's a personal question. Nobody in this room can pray for anybody else to be saved and salvation happen to them. It's something that we have to do for ourselves. It's a personal decision. It's a personal choice. And I'm praying, God, that your spirit has clearly been able to work on each of our hearts today because you're an intimate God who wants to know us personally. So, Lord, right now, I'm asking you to do what you intended to do all along today. Your word says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. You are drawing people right now because your word says also that unless the spirit draws, no man can come to God. Father, if you're working on a soul, please don't quit working. Please draw them. Thank you for all you've done to make salvation available and possible today for those who need to be saved. Thank you for the work that you've done in saving those that are already saved. God, inspire us to help others come to know you. Right now, Lord, we want to trust you. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Will you stand? Will you not only stand, will you take a step forward for Jesus and trust him? Will you live for him? He died for you. All he asks you to do is live for him and trust him. He'll change your life. He'll make heaven possible for you. Will you come?